0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you all being here this morning. We're going to continue our study in First Thessalonians this morning. And we're going to be wrapping up chapter 4 today. Now, from chapter 4, verse 13 through 511, the context is the second coming. And in this section, Paul's answering some questions that the Thessalonians had asked. As we saw in chapter 1, verse 10, the Thessalonians were waiting on the Lord's return. I mean, they expected it in their lifetime. So they're waiting for it. Now, while they were waiting... For the parousia, some of them had died. And so they're concerned about their dead loved ones. Are they going to miss out on this? So Paul comforts them with the knowledge that their loved ones will not miss out when the Lord returns. Now, so far we've looked at verses 13 through 15. I'm going to read those again. Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. This is the problem. They're questioning. They don't understand this. I want to give you the right information. He says, I don't want you uninformed about those who are asleep, the ones who had died, that you not grieve as others who have no hope, because I don't want you grieving. That's why I want to straighten out your information. Others who have no hope are those who don't believe in the resurrection. That was the hope of Israel, was the resurrection from the dead. He was encouraging them that would happen. He says, for since we believe that Yeshua died and rose again, even so, through Yeshua, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This is an important thing here. He is saying, basically, I'm getting this teaching from the Lord. All right, I'm declaring to you, this is what the Lord said, I'm repeating it for you. He says that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, if you have not heard the last two messages on these verses, I'd encourage you to listen to them, not right now. Uh, wait till we're done here and then go back and listen to them All right, and catch up with what's going on here because these verses have a, a lot in them. All right. Now for our study this morning, we're going to be looking at the verses that the rapture doctrine is built upon. Verses 16 and 17, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Now, most Christians today view this rapture, they view this passage as describing an escape from the troubles of the world. You know, most Christians are like, yeah, the Lord's coming in the future, but He can wait a little bit because things are good right now. But when you have a bad day, when you're having a bad life, then you're like, get me out of here. You know, beam me up, Scotty. They want to get raptured. They want to get out of here. And it's just, uh, you know, an escape from the troubles of the world. And most Christians today believe that one day soon, it's always soon. It was soon when Yeshua spoke it to the... I mean, when yeah, Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians... And it's still soon today. So it's been soon for a couple thousand years. Someday soon, Yeshua is going to physically appear in the sky. They believe they will see him. And immediately all the dead are going to come out of the graves. They're going to be resurrected. They're going to rise to meet him. And the living Christians are going to be caught up in the clouds with them to be with Christ. They believe that Christians will be physically taken up off of this earth. And you've seen the pictures and you've, you know... Airplane pilots are gone and cars, you know, aren't manned anymore and there's crashing all over and things are going on. I'm sure you've seen the pictures, all right? Everyone's flying up out of the graves and this is what most people think this passage is talking about. Now, let me ask you this. Are you aware that this rapture of the church idea is not a historical teaching of the church? This rapture-based theology has only been around for the past couple of hundred years and predominantly in America. The biblical scholar N.T. Wright refers to this doctrine as an American obsession. He says few Christians in the UK hold any sort of belief in it. Now the origins of this rapture theology lie in 1830 Scotland where a 15-year-old girl named Margaret MacDonald claimed to see a vision of a two-stage return of Christ. Well, then John Nelson Darby, a British evangelist and the founder of the Plymouth Brethren, he took McDonald's vision and created an entire system out of it based on which Yeshua's return is a two-stage event. So this girl has a vision. They make a doctrine out of it. Now, through various mission trips to the U.S. in the late 19th century... The notion of a rapture found itself appealing to American Christians who were going through the atrocities of the Civil War at the time, which by all means must have looked like Armageddon. I mean, nation rising against nation, brother against brother, son against father. With more than half a million dead, who wouldn't find a let's get out of here theology attractive? And they did. And this mindset was so exasperated by World War I and the publication of the Schofield Reference Bible, which was handed out to soldiers in the trenches. Now, two other events correspond to the promotion of the rapture in America. One was the conversion of D.L. Moody to the eschatological system. He later found Moody Bible Institute. You're all familiar with that. And he had a major radio program, which would become important in the promotion of the rapture theology. And secondly, the establishment of Dallas Theological Seminary, which is a dispensational training center. During the 20th century, the physical rapture of the church became the dominant eschatological view in America. Never held it before, but it, it took over, became the dominant belief. Now, what's interesting about the people who believe this <clears throat> excuse me, is the time of the rapture has been a matter of great disagreement among those who believe in it. Uh, because they say, well, there's no real passage that tells us exactly when it's going to happen. But some believe it will take place before the tribulation. So they're pre-tribulationists. Others believe it will take place after the tribulation. So they're post-tribulationists. Others conclude it will take place in the middle of the tribulation. So they're mid Tribulationists, and still others hold that the Lord will catch away only some Christians. If you're living for the Lord, then you get oh, you get to go. Other Christians get left behind, so they're partial raptureists. There's other views on this, but you know you get the point. Okay, it's it's kind of crazy. Now, futurists may be confused about the time of the Parousia, but Paul wasn't. He gives us a window of time for the resurrection in parousia when he says, We who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. See, a critical key in understanding this text is knowing the hermeneutical principle of audience relevance. This, is, this should be taught to everybody. What, is the, what did the original audience, that would be here the Thessalonians in the first century, what did they understand this to mean? We know that Paul is writing this letter to first century saints who live in Thessalonica. This text is not written to us. As a matter of fact, the Bible's not written to us. Yeah, I know. It's written for us, but it's not written to us. You tell Christians that and they just lose their mind. But I'm like, I ask them, show me the book in the Bible that's written to you. You know. To the believers in Hampton Roads, you know, wh- where is that book at? It's not in there. Okay, you're not a Thessalonian. You're not a Philippian. You're not a Colossian. These are not written to you. They are for you, and they are profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be perfect. But they're not written to us. So we have to understand what did they mean to the people to whom they were written. How could it be written to us when it's 2,000 years old? So Paul's writing the first century saints, In the year 50 A.D. And it sure sounds like he expects to be alive when the Lord returns. Notice Paul's use of the first person pronoun we instead of the third person pronoun those. He doesn't say those who are alive whenever this happens. No, we. We who are alive. That's a time statement, people. The we must be seen as the collective group of Paul and his audience. They, Paul and the Thessalonians, were expecting the return of Christ in their lifetime. This is clearly taught throughout this book and throughout the Bible. Now, if the Thessalonians didn't believe that the Lord would return in their lifetime, why would they be worrying about those that had died? Because if if he wasn't going to return in their lifetime, they figure we're all going to die because it's not happening in our lifetime. So why worry about some that died? There's no point in that at all. All right, let's move on. To the next verse in our text it says for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command the voice of the archangel the sound of the trumpet of god and the dead in christ will rise first now the lord himself this is yeshua okay that's who it's talking about he will descend from heaven now the description of a descent from heaven here is referred to in chapter 4 verse 15 as the coming of the lord and the word coming parousia, which originally means presence or coming. And I think presence is best in the context here. And comparing other descriptions of Christ's coming, it should be clear that emotion from heaven down to earth is not the precise way in which Christ manifests his end-time presence. That's not what it's talking about, a physical person floating down out of heaven. The word descend here, was commonly used with the priests descent out of the temple to announce that atonement had been completed. Now, let me go back to the web discussion of Sam Frost that we talked about last week. Talking about our text here in 1 Thessalonians, Sam says this, It is for this reason that the dead in Christ shall be raised first. Those who are living on earth at that time, before those who are living on earth at that time, why? Because they're already with him in heaven. They come with him when he descends from heaven. He says this is not apocalyptic language. Jesus uses the same word in John 3.13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. That's not apocalyptic. I am the living bread that descends from heaven. Clear, plain language. What? So the Lord's a loaf of bread? What? Clear, plain language? He says, I'm the bread that comes down out of heaven. That's clear and plain? So we just take that his literal meaning. The Lord's telling us he's a loaf of bread. Okay? <laughs> Watch. Even a hyper pret can't screw that up. Well, they can. Because 70 A.D. forces them to. But that's a highly prejudiced interpretation to be dismissed. Uh, Someone's highly prejudiced, but I don't think it's the pretz, okay? So Sam says, The dead in Christ shall be raised first because they're already with him in heaven. Okay, listen. (laughs) Please think this through with me. The dead in Christ are in heaven in the presence of Yahweh. Then what sense are they dead? How can you be in the presence of the living God and be said to be dead? Does that make any sense? He's the living God who gives life, but they're in his presence, but they're dead. Listen, Adam's sin caused his death And when he died, what did God do? Put him out of the garden. Separated from God. That's death, to be separated from God. When Israel was out of the land because of their sin, they were considered dead. Because they were out of Yahweh's presence, because Yahweh dwelled only in one spot, they thought, okay? So they were out of his presence. They were dead. In the new heavens and new earth, Yahweh is said to dwell with man. Revelation 21, 3 and 4. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Why is there no more death? Because God is present with us. There's no more separation from him. He is here. So how are the dead in Christ with Yahweh in heaven? In this discussion, Sam says, aren't they already with God in heaven? Yes. (laughs) Okay. That clears that up. Yes. Aren't they then alive? Yes. So how are they dead? What then? That is theirs stands in need of being raised. Well, their bodies, duh, Well, here's the duh, Sam. The text says nothing about bodies. The dead in Christ are dead because they are not with Yahweh. They are separated from Him. They are in Sheol waiting on the resurrection of the dead so they can be with Yahweh. Resurrection is not about bodies. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say the body will be resurrected. The Bible never uses the terms resurrected body, resurrection of the body, or physical resurrection. Now, the church uses those terms quite often, but the Bible never uses them. The phrases that the Bible does use are the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection from the dead. If these deceased believers are said to be dead, then they're not with Yahweh but in Sheol awaiting the resurrection of the dead. People, you can't be in God's presence and be dead. That's ridiculous. He is the essence of life. Sam goes on to say, they come with him when he descends from heaven. This is not apocalyptic language. I have a major problem with that. Okay? This text is talking about the parousia. And the resurrection. And this, Paul says his words come right from Yeshua. And I believe he's talking about right from Yeshua in Matthew 24. But it's not apocalyptic. Does anybody know what Matthew 24 is called? It's called the little apocalypse. But, Paul's using that, but this is not apocalyptic. Now, apocalyptic literature is a combination of narrative and prose, written in vivid imagery and poetic phrases that are intended to exaggerate for the purpose of bringing our attention to something. We see this in Daniel, we see it in Revelation. Apocalyptic language, great commotions and judgments upon earth are often represented by commotions and changes that go on in heaven. It's exaggerated, figurative language to catch our attention. Listen, apocalyptic language is not to be taken literally. But they want to take this passage literally, so they say, this is not apocalyptic. Well, I don't know how you get around that. If it's coming from Matthew 24, it's got to be apocalyptic. If we're going to rightly interpret the Word of God, we have to apply the rules of hermeneutics. And the primary rule of hermeneutics is called... The analogy of faith. Okay? And the analogy of faith means scripture interprets scripture. All right? That means no part of scripture can be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict with what is clearly taught elsewhere in scripture. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. So we have to figure it out by comparing scripture with scripture. And as we compare scripture with scripture, we see that this is apocalyptic language speaking of judgment. In our text, we have descent from heaven, a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God, being caught up into clouds, meeting the Lord in the air. People, this is clearly apocalyptic language and must be interpreted as such. Are these clouds here just cumulus clouds that believers float up into? That's why he threw clouds in. This is just clouds, and this is not apocalyptic. This is literal. There has to be clouds, okay? So that, in that case, we know we're not getting raptured on a clear day. Mm-hmm. Got to be clouds, okay? I mean, it's ridiculous to try to make this literal. Listen, to not take this text as apocalyptic is to misinterpret it. A comparison between 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and Matthew 24 is fascinating. Okay, as we keep in mind that Yeshua uses apocalyptic language in Matthew 24, we can't expect the same language to be literal in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And those who believe the coming of Matthew refers to the spiritual events surrounding Jerusalem's fall would insist that we not literalize the clouds, the angels, or the trumpet blast. And if they're not literal in Matthew, why would they be in Thessalonians? Matthew is the source of... Of the language in Thessalonians. Paul says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. All right, let me show you some comparisons here. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not going to read all the references. The references are going to change on top as as I bring these out, because I'm trying to compare what Matthew's saying and what Thessalonians is saying. So you can go back and look through it. I don't want to call them all out for time, but here's something that happened. Christ, they're both texts, talk about Christ returning. okay? They both talk about he's coming from heaven. They both talk about with a shout. They both talk about accompanied by angels. They both talk about with the trumpet of God. They both talk about believers gathered. They both talk about in clouds. They're both talking about time unknown. They both talk about will come as a thief. They both talk about... Unbelievers unaware of the impending judgment. Both speak of this. Number 11, judgment comes as travail upon expectant mother. Both talk about that. Then you get to number 12, it says believers are told to watch. Be aware. And they both talk about warning against drunkenness. Now, in Matthew 24, Yeshua predicted his coming to gather the saints in that generation in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, Paul spoke of the same coming of the Lord to gather the saints. So I want to ask you this. How many comings, we're going to skip Margaret McDonald on this, you know, we're going with the Bible. How many comings of the Lord with his angels in fire, in power and glory to gather the saints are there in the New Testament? I'll let you guess, okay? Just one, okay? The conclusion is inescapable. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 is dealing with the exact same coming, judgment, and gathering as Matthew 24. All right? They're talking about the same thing. And in Thessalonians, he says you're going to hear a cry of command. When the Lord comes from heaven, there's going to be this cry. This cry of command. Now, this is from the Greek word, which is only used here in the New Testament. It's a military term. Thayer's definition of this is an order, a command, a stimulating cry, that by which a signal is given to men, to rowers by the master of a ship, or to soldiers by a commander, with a loud summons, a trumpet call. So we have this command coming out to be doing something. Okay. Then he says, the voice of an archangel. According to Jewish thought, the archangels were the rulers of the angels or the principal messengers among the multitude of angels. In Yeshua's eschatological discourse, the angels play an important role in the moment when the chosen of God are gathered together. Matthew 24, 31. So when he comes, he's coming with angels. That's mentioned several places. And then we have with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now, the sounding of the trumpet was a cultural way, one of announcing the visit or approaching royalty in the East. They got royalty coming, you blow the trumpet. All right. In the Bible, the trumpet announces divine judgment. It announces resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. It announces the gathering of the elect by angels, Matthew 24, 31. And we see in Leviticus 23, 24, and numbers 102 that trumpets are sounded to assemble the people of God they blew the trumpets when you heard that the people of God come together all right here the trumpet of God gathers together the people of God now it's possible that all three sounds the cry of command the voice of trumpet they refer to the sounds of the angel because revelation one says the angel's voice is called a trumpet so could be referring to an angel doing something here. But Psalms associates the voice or the shout of God with a trumpet. God has gone up with a shout, Yahweh with the sound of a trumpet. So what's happening here? Uh, okay, if we're going to take this passage a little bit, we're, we're going to hear this, someone yell out a command. We're going to hear it, okay? And then we're going to hear some archangel say something, and then we're going to hear a trumpet go off. Is this really going to all be happening? Are going to hear and see all this stuff? I think the cry of command, the voice of the trumpet, they all refer to the Lord's voice that's mentioned in John five, twenty five. It says, Truly, truly I say to you, an hour is coming, and now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. John five twenty eight, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Now, how are they gonna hear his voice if they're dead? the voice of god brings life okay 1 corinthians 15:52 in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed i think this is exactly what paul's saying at the end of verse 16 and the dead in christ will rise first they're going to hear the voice of god and they're going to rise in all these passages we have the resurrection of the dead believers associated with the trumpet The Good News Bible translates this, those who have died believing in Christ will rise to life first. Amen. Now, the traditional view interprets this as the spirits of departed saints are with the Lord now, although they're dead. He will bring them with Him when He returns, join their spirits to their resurrected bodies, and then change their bodies into glorified bodies as they meet Christ in the air. All right, we already looked at, talked about the dead in Christ. That's not referring to anybody in heaven, okay? First of all, he makes it really clear, the dead in Christ will rise first. That's what the first thing is going to happen at the second coming. Then what happens? Then we who are alive. So if the dead in Christ rise first at the second coming, and if the second coming hasn't happened, we're the dead in Christ. In the grave, okay? Still in the grave. Nobody goes to heaven until the second coming, And they'll be the first ones. Okay, we got that time statement again, okay? Prior to the parousia, people didn't go to heaven. Until atonement was complete, they waited for the resurrection in Sheol. So this is talking about those who are asleep. They're in sleep in Sheol. They're being raised by Yeshua and they're taken into heaven. This is the resurrection of the dead. We spent some time last week talking about the resurrection. So let me ask you a question here. How do we know that this was a spiritual resurrection of bringing the saints into God's presence and not a physical resurrection from the graves? How do we know that? We know this because, listen, time defines nature. If the time of the resurrection was the first century, which Paul said in Acts 24, there's about to be a resurrection of the dead, okay? We know the second coming happened. We know the resurrection happened at AD 70. So that's time, and it defines the nature. The nature must have been spiritual because guess what? The graves didn't come open, and everybody floated up out of the graves in AD 70. They didn't come out of the graves, all right, let's move on. Verse 17, then we who are alive, good, the dead people take care of, let's talk about us, the people who are around when the Lord returns. We who are alive, again, Paul says we, expects to be in there, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. This is the verse that the physical rapture theory comes from. Commenting on this verse, Henry Alford writes this, The Apostles' declarations here are made in the practical tone of strict matter of fact and are given as literal details. Never was a place where the analogy of symbolical apocalyptic language was less applicable. What's he saying? This is all literal, absolutely literal, nothing allegorical here, nothing apocalyptic here. Either these details must be received by us as a matter of practical expectation or we must set aside the apostle as one divinely empowered to teach the church. In other words, if you don't agree with me, then Paul's a false teacher. What? This is absolutely ridiculous and it's without a shred of evidence. He just says these words are literal. I say it so and if you don't agree with me, then Paul's messed up. Where's your evidence? Where's your proof of this? Again, so okay, if it's a cloudless day, we're safe, no rapture. Because they got, we're going in the clouds, so... I mean, you want to make this literal? How literal are we going to get here? Okay? This is clearly, in this text, apocalyptic language. And to deny that it's apocalyptic is to ignore what Paul said earlier. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. When talking about the Parousia, the authors all use apocalyptic language. Let me show you a few passages that talk about the Parousia. Acts one eleven. He said, "Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Yeshua who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going to heaven." Okay, so he went in the cloud. He's coming in the cloud. Simple, right? Well, let's look at what Matthew says about it. Matthew 24, 27. For as lightning comes from the east and shines from the, as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, wait a minute. Is it on a cloud or does it have to do with lightning? I'm, I'm getting confused now. Because this is different than Acts 11. So which one is it? Well, let's look at another one. Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, and 8. See if this has clouds in it and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. So the coming of the Lord is going to give relief to the Thessalonians when the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. Well, that's different than coming in clouds, and that's different than lightning. Here we got flaming fire dealing out Retribution. Well, let's go to John in Revelation 19.11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on was called Faithful and True. So John has Yeshua coming on a horse, not a cloud. Maybe the horse is on the cloud, and there's lightning coming out of the cloud, and it, we gotta, we got to put it all together here, okay? So how can anybody say that language dealing with the parousia is literal? When you compare Scripture to Scripture, it just doesn't add up, okay? We know this is figurative. We understand that. Some people understand it. Sam has problems with this. So does Henry Alford, okay? But I think most people should get it. Let's look at this passage in the Greek and see if we can dispel some of the false notions. All right, the Bible was not written in English, okay? And the problem today, we read it in English and we say, I know what this means because I know English. Well, okay, but is that what the Bible's talking about? When when you think of a cloud, you think of a puffy little white thing up in the sky. When the original writers, readers thought of clouds, they thought of presence of God. They thought of different things than we think of. So we have to get back into their mindset. We have to understand the language here so we don't come up with these false notions. Let's start with the first word here, then. Good place to start. Anybody know what this means? <laughs> The Greek here is epeta. Write that down. You're going to need to know that. Normally when a sequence of events is described, the simple word ada then is used. Ada is best translated as at that time or next. So ada is used to indicate an immediate sequence. For example, we see ada used in John 19, 26, and 27. When Yeshua saw his mother and the disciple whom love standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then, Ada, he said to the disciple, he's talking to Lazarus here, Behold your mother. So, this is a series here. There's no gap, there's no, sometimes later, he no, he didn't have a lot of time there, okay. He says this to his mother. Then he says, it's a series of events, one immediately after the other. But in our text the Greek word is not eta, it's epita, which is essentially the same Greek word with an epi prefix. This has the effect of affixing the word after to the word then. And the best translation becomes after then, or after that, or after that time. And thereby doesn't necessarily mean right after, but it could. Some say that epita means that the living would be caught up to meet the Lord in the air at a later time, maybe referring to after their death. In other words, the dead in Christ shall rise first, then, or after that time, we who are alive who remain will be caught up. What after that time? I don't know. Whenever they die, they'll be caught up. Okay? That's one way you could look at this. Epitah is used in Scripture of an interval of three years. Paul says, then... And he's talking about three years later. And he used epitaph. It's used of an interval of 13 years in Scripture. In other words, it's after, sometime after, okay? And that's why people get the idea, okay, when you die, you go to be with the Lord. That's fine. I think that's a legitimate translation. And I used to hold that view. Used to. But I changed my mind, okay? And I changed my mind for two reasons. Number one, epita. Epita does not always mean after that time. Epitah is used 16 times in the New Testament. Twelve of them have the very clear idea of after that time, indicating sometime later. But four of the New Testament uses of epita do indicate like right after, like a sequence. For example, it's used in James 3.17, but the wisdom from above is first, first pure, epita peaceable, gentle, so there's not a sequence, there's not after that time here. And also the writer of Hebrews says, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then epitah for those of the people, after that time for the people. See, this would indicate sometime later the high priest offered for the sins of the people, but that's not how it worked. Okay, the high priest offered for his sins, then immediately he would offer for the sins of the people. Let me show you that in Leviticus 16, 11 through 15. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. He shall take a censer full of coals from fire from the altar before Yahweh, two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil. And put the incense on the fire before Yahweh, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood from the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Now, this is the high priest going through the ritual here. Now, remember, in the Lord's time, what's in the Holy of Holies? Nothing. There's nothing in there. So when he went in there to, you know, put it, up, sprinkle the blood on the altar. There's nothing there. The, the ark was gone. The mercy seat's gone. So they're going through the motions, but it's a dead thing because it's not there. Okay. So here, all this high priest is doing this. Watch. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring the blood inside the veil. So right after that, he does it for himself, then he does it for the people. There's no, there's no gap here. So I changed my mind. First of all, because epita does not always mean after that time. It could, it doesn't always, it doesn't have to. And secondly, and there have to be two reasons because that one wouldn't be strong enough in itself. The parallel text don't indicate a delay for the living. If you look at the parallel text, Matthew, 1 Corinthians, there's no delay. We don't see a delay in Matthew 24, where he comes in the clouds and the elect are gathered. And we don't see a delay in 1 Corinthians. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Cool. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Okay, you got it again. The dead are raised, just like in our text. Then we who are left, he says, we shall be changed. Now, it doesn't say we shall be caught up, we shall be raptured, we're going to be changed. Okay, the word changed here is a lasso, which Thayer says means to change, to exchange one thing for another, to transform. This word is only used six times in the Scripture. Alasso. And none of them have anything to do with movement. Okay? In other words, changing doesn't mean I'm going somewhere. It has nothing to do with movement anywhere. Paul says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my mind, Alasso, Change my mind, for I'm perplexed about you. He says that in Galatians 4:20. So he wants his mind to change. Mind's not going anywhere. He's just thinking on a different viewpoint about this. Strong says this means to make different. You're changed. You're being changed. You're being made different. First Corinthians 15:53. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality so the living put on immortality which is to be brought into the presence of God in a spiritual sense not it doesn't again there's no movement here there's no taking you anywhere doing anything so the question is why does Paul use epita instead of Ada it had just made things simpler why did not he do that and my answer is I don't have a clue Okay, I don't know. But, but since the writer of Hebrews and James both use epita to refer to a sequence, it can be used that way. Why do you do it? I don't know. Okay, the dead in Christ are raised, and then we who are alive who are left. Again, Paul indicates himself among those who could be alive when the Lord returns. He's using the first person pronoun we instead of the third person pronoun, those. There is a clear implication here. Paul believed the coming of the Lord and the things described here were eminent would occur any time. All right? He says, we will be caught up. This is it, folks. This is the Greek word harpazo, which implies a snatching away. Now, you say, how do we get rapture out of harpazo? Well, the Latin Vulgate translates caught up as rapturo, okay? From which the term rapture comes. Now, does being caught up mean levitation of the physical body from earth into the atmosphere of the sky? The raising of the dead in Christ is not physical. We're not seeing dead bodies come out of the grave at the resurrection. The graves weren't emptied in AD seventy. So my question would be, why would being caught up be physical? That's not physical. It says caught up being physical, we're floating up into the sky. Harpazo could refer to the physical body being caught up, but it could also refer to the Christian being caught up without the body. It's used this way by Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.4. Paul says, I know a man in Christ who in 14 years ago was caught up, Harpazo, to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. He's caught up. He's raptured. But I don't know if his body went or if it's just him. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up, Harpazo, into paradise. All right, notice the first one, he's caught up to the third heaven. Then he's caught up to paradise. The third heaven, paradise, they're the same thing. Paradise is the presence of God. You go to heaven, presence of God. Paradise, presence of God. Whether in the body or of the body, I don't know. God knows. So Paul doesn't know whether the body was involved in this man's snatching away his harpazo. That would tell me the body isn't necessary in the harpazo event, or Paul wouldn't have expressed his uncertainty. If harpazo meant the body, he said, yeah, he, he would have known. Jude 1.23 use the word harpazo and he says this save others by snatching them harpazo out of the fire does that have anything to do with the body there is he saying people are literally getting near the fire you got to snatch them back no he's saying change their thinking pull them from the fire they're going to get judged if they keep going the direction they are no movement here people say yeah but philip philip was harpazo and he went into a different place did he really I know people try to take that text and say, oh, Philip was definitely trans, his body was moved somewhere else. But that that could be interpreted as a forcible impression of the Spirit made him go right away. The Spirit impressed him and he left immediately. Doesn't have to do, there's nothing in the text that makes it sound like he was transformed in his body. I believe we know that Paul didn't mean living Christians would be caught up In their living physical bodies at the second coming. And I think we should know this because it never happened. Now you say, how do you know you weren't there? Right. But I know people who were. Okay. (laughs) First of all, Christians were still around on the earth after the second coming. How do I know that? Because I read this book before Jerusalem fell. Okay. This is an an excellent book, by the way, on the dating of the book of Revelation. The title of the book is Dating the Book of Revelation, An Exegetical and Historical Argument for Pre-AD70 Composition by Kenneth L. Gentry. And it's a great book. But in this book, Gentry gives evidence that John was seen by Polycarp in the 90s. The Apostle John was seen in the 90s. That's some 20 years after the parousia, John's still around. So if John's still around, John didn't get harpazoed. So why? Was he bad? Was he not living for the Lord at the time or something? He just didn't get well, that partial rapture theory. He didn't get to go up. Now, I know someone's going to say, well, that's just history and that's not very reliable. Okay, I'll give you that. How about Scripture? Is Scripture reliable? Well, let me show you something. Mark eight thirty-eight to 9, 1. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father, with his holy angels. So here's the coming, and with angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now Mark here uses the perfect participle of come. Mark is saying that some of the disciples would still be alive after the kingdom had already come in power. They didn't get taken. J.A. Alexander writes this. Here, come, is not, as the English word may seem to mean, in the act of coming, till they see it come, but actually or already come. The only sense that can be put upon the perfect participle here employed. So they didn't get raptured up off the earth. They were alive after the kingdom had arrived, according to Mark. All right, let's go to Revelation. The spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears say, come. And let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The one who's thirsty is thirsty for the gospel, thirsty for God. They want to know God. They want to be in God's presence. All right. So the spirit and the bride say, come. Who's the bride here? This is the first century church, okay? Now listen, this passage is in the new heaven and new earth after the parousia and the church is calling people to drink the water of life. How did the church do this if it was raptured off the earth? How are they here after the parousia calling people to come? If Yeshua took the church away in A.D. 70, as some teach, who was there to preach the gospel? Look at what Paul says in Romans 10, 13 through 14. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You got that, right? Now, Paul's going to work backwards here. Watch. How can they call on him if they don't believe? If they don't believe in God, are they going to call on God? No, that'd be dumb. I don't believe now. I'm not going to call on God. And then he goes back further. How are they to believe in him and who they've never heard? Can they believe in someone they've never heard of? No, they can't believe. They have to hear. And then once they hear, they can believe. And then they can call. And he goes back even further. How are they to hear without someone preaching? So no preaching, no hearing, no hearing, no believing, no believing, no calling, no calling, no salvation. Someone needs to be preaching the gospel for people to get saved. Who did this if believers were taken off in AD '70? Psh, all gone. There's nothing then. The dead are in heaven. Believers go to heaven. And there's just nothing. A vast wilderness of nobody knowing anything. No gospel. Another question I always have, why did Paul and Timothy, or why did yeah, Paul have Timothy, and Titus set up churches and ordain elders when writing to them in AD 64 to 65? If the church was going to be taken off the earth in just a few years, what's he working at getting elders and getting things set up and getting this church going? Just boom, it's going to be gone in a few years. And then what happens? I got so many questions about a physical rapture. Okay? If you didn't get this by now, I don't believe in a physical rapture. Okay? (laughs) We will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now, Again, are the clouds here cumulus clouds? We're going to float up into the sky? I mean, that's what it reads like, right? You're reading it? Okay, I'm just going to float up into the clouds. In biblical language, people, clouds are symbolic of the presence of God. This this is the second use of clouds in the Bible. It says, Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud. This was His presence manifest to Israel. They followed this thing. When this thing moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. It was the presence of God. Clouds also symbolize wrath and judgment against the enemies of his people. David said the Lord delivered him from his enemies while descending on the clouds in Psalm 18, 3 through 15. The Lord said he would ride into Egypt on a cloud and punish Egypt. Isaiah 19.1. This is a great verse. If you don't know this, you need to mark this down. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. Are we taking this literally? So there's some physical presence surfing on a cloud, riding it somehow into Egypt. Watch, the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. So obviously God's there and they can see him, right? the heart of the Egyptians will melt. If you want to take that literally, but if you want to take it in the sense that it's written, nobody in Egypt saw Yahweh, okay? He didn't literally ride it in a cloud that they could see Him. But Egypt did receive this judgment, but it was brought to them by the hands of the Assyrians. In chapter 20, verse 1 through 6 talks about this. So the Assyrians come in, And judge Egypt, but the Bible says Yahweh was riding a cloud. In other words, this is judgment. And when the New Testament talks about Yeshua riding on a cloud, he's coming in judgment on Jerusalem. He's not there in a physical presence. The Roman army are taking taking care of the things for him. The idols of Egypt were trembling at his presence, it says. But he wasn't present. He was present only through the Syrians who were doing the thing. The idea of Yeshua physically coming on the clouds would have been contrary to the nature and understanding of the Old Covenant prophets. Clouds clouds symbolize the presence of Yahweh, often in judgment. So they're going to meet, we're going to meet, these believers are going to rise up to meet the Lord in the air. See that? They're going in the air, everything's in the clouds. That's where clouds are in the air. They're going in the air, so it's physical, right? I don't think so. If you take it literally, you can make it that way. But what does the word air mean? Is the air talking about atmosphere? or Is it talking about the air we breathe? What air are we thinking about? Well, I think that Ephesians chapter 2 gives us the idea of what it means here. It says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See, the word air here is another word for heavenly or spiritual realm. Satan was an opponent of the scheme of redemption as we see throughout the New Testament. He was the prince of the power of the air. And Paul said in Romans 16, 20 that Satan was soon to be crushed under the feet of the Romans. Now remember audience relevance. So Yeshua has now taken over the sphere and rules in the air with the saints since the destruction of Jerusalem. If that's the same air where the saints were to meet, then there's no necessity for us to believe that this rapture was a physical realm, okay? And notice he says, we're going to meet the Lord in the air. Again, you, you think, okay, we just meet him. That's good. Hi, how are you doing? I don't know what you think meet means here, but Paul, what does Paul mean? Well, he uses the word here, apontesis. Apontesis is only used three times in the Bible, and the two other times it's used it clearly signifies ascending of an advanced party to meet a dignitary and then escort him back from where they came. So the only three times this is used, two of them we know for sure this is what it's talking about. So would Paul use this word and use it in a different sense? Well, he could have, I guess, but that doesn't make any sense to me. If you go to Acts 28, it says the Christians in Rome went out to meet Paul. Same word. Apontasis. They met Paul at the Appius Forum and then they escorted him back to their homes. The other usage of this word is found in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. In the parable of the ten virgins, the kingdom of heaven is likened to the ten virgins who took their lamps and they went forth to meet the bridegroom. Apontesis. And the word is used here, meet Apontasis, which means... To meet and escort back. As is evidenced by the fact that they met the bridegroom and then they went to their house from which they came. We see that in Matthew 25, 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with them to the marriage feast and the door was shut. So they met him and they took him back to where they were go- came from. In verse 13 it says, Watch therefore, because you know neither the day nor the hour. Now in verse 13, Christ clarifies that this is what will occur in the generation when he comes. The significance of this, that when Christ comes in the clouds, he literally yet spiritually gathered those who were alive, caught them up into the kingdom of God, and then he returned with them to dwell with him. And that's the blessing of the new covenant. God dwells with us. So we met him in the air and brought him back to earth to dwell with us. That's the meaning of this word. So, unless Paul meant something totally different in this one time when he used it, there's confusion here. It's a spiritual event that was visibly manifest through the destruction of the temple as God rode the cloud. He says, We'll be caught up together with them to meet the caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is a picture of God's elect being brought into the presence of God in the Holy Holies. They're caught up. They're changed, is the idea here. They're changed, and they meet the Lord. They're with His presence in the clouds. They meet Him. They take Him back to where they came from. He's here with us, dwelling with us. Is Paul talking about a little rapture here? I highly doubt it. Paul believed that the Lord would return in his lifetime. We've gone over that so many times. Paul preached strongly about the second coming. He preached on the resurrection. He preached on the judgment. He never spoke of a physical rapture for living Christians. He never talked about that. Unless this text in Thessalonians does, and it sure doesn't seem to from my perspective. It's not the physical body, people, that is raptured. It's the Christian himself who is raptured. He is brought into the presence of the Lord. He is changed, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians. The dead believers were resurrected when Christ returns. Again, this wasn't a physical resurrection. And so I don't see why the rapture would be physical. All other Christians caught up with the Lord. Now they're in His presence. So the dead go into His presence from the grave, then the living are brought into his presence because now the second coming's happened. Heaven is open. The barrier's down. The temple's gone. We dwell with God. In looking at the related passage of what immediately followed the parousia, we find the phrases gather the elect from the four winds. That's what Matthew talks about bringing all the people of God together, each in his own turn, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 23. And he says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on in Revelation 14, 13. These are equivalent and they're all applicable for us today. The process of being snatched away or caught away from, I think is the idea of you're being caught away from death in Hades. You're being caught away from being separated from God. You're now gathered into the presence of the Lord in eighty seventy, The rapture deals with being brought into the presence of the God, of God, putting on immortality, being changed. That's a big change, people. We were mortal. Now we put on immortality because we're part of the body of Christ. Paul says, and so will we always be with the Lord because he's here. We're sacred space. He dwells with believers now. There's nothing that can ever ever change that believer once you trust christ once you become a christian you're always a christian people that bothers people <laughs> i don't understand that you must think you're really spiritual if that doesn't bother you okay that i'm so spiritual that well, god would never do away with me i'm good you know but other people he can kick them out anytime let me show you something romans 8 37 39 knowing all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing in the world will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Yeshua our Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. we got to say amen there, people. Nothing can separate us. That's why I love that song we sing. There's nothing can separate us. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to be worried about. We cannot be separated from our God. All believers are secure in their union with Christ. Nothing will ever separate us. And Paul closes with verse 18, and he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul earlier said, we don't want you to be uninformed. And then he says, comfort one another. So he's saying there's practical benefit in biblical theology. Okay? Okay? I mean, this passage is a deep eschatological passage. But the reason Paul wrote this was to comfort them. I think that's amazing. Can you think of another theological passage that is so rich and deep in theology and was written for a practical purpose to teach about humility? It's pop quiz. It's pop quiz. Philippians chapter 2, the doctrine of the kenosis, the self emptying of the Lord Yeshua. He left heaven's glory. He became a man. Paul said to the the Philippians, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ. So you have the same attitude of humility that Christ had. Then he talks about the kenosis, to give an example of humility. That's amazing, people. That's probably one of the most doctrine-heavy texts you'll ever find. And the purpose is, as an example of humility. People, theology is practical. Don't let anybody ever tell you different, okay? I don't need all that deep... Listen, theology is practical. That's why he does it. I don't want you to be uninformed, so I'm teaching you doctrine so you don't grieve. Well, are these words of comfort to us? I think they are. We're comforted in the fact that as believers, we're now in the presence of the Lord. We're not waiting for anything. We know this is all past, this is all history. God has brought believers into His presence. We live in His presence. And when we die, we will leave this physical realm, move into the spiritual realm with a spiritual body that is designed to live in that realm. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your love for us. I thank You, Lord, that theology is practical. That when we understand the truth, it comforts our hearts ministers to us gives us a peace thank you father for so much that we have available to us today to understand the truth of your word may we apply our hearts lord to it that we would know you and walk with you in an intimate way thank you lord that we're not waiting for anything we're enjoying what we have amen Amen. all right questions comments Yes, Gary. Well, I just for it. So, mentioned earlier, heaven and paradise—the same. And then, being in the presence of God is paradise. Now that He dwells with us, is this paradise? Well, it is if He's with us, okay. And it, like it's a—it's a new heaven and new earth. Okay, people say, wow, that's not very cool. (laughs) The new heaven and the earth is the new covenant. Again, you have to understand it's a spiritual thing where there's no death. In other words, you as a believer can never be separated from God. That's what death is, separation from God. Uh, Someone asked, could Lazarus have been the man in Christ that was taken up to the third heaven that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians? He absolutely could have been. I don't think Paul's speaking about himself there. He says, I knew a man. Mm-hmm. It might have been Lazarus. I don't, I, I mean, I have no way to prove that or defend that, but it's possible, okay? Um, we're speculating. I don't really like speculating, but that's a possibility, okay? Yes, and it is possible it could have been Paul. That's the thing. We don't, we don't really know. Someone says, outstanding message. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Okay, this is awful long here. <laughs> I like to think the clouds you referred to were the Syrians descended upon Egypt or when the Romans came to destroy the temple. Describe the clouds of dust that a marching army of men would create when attacking. So yes, technically arriving in cl- in, on the clouds. The dead prior to the second coming were simply no longer or asleep as it described in the Bible. So being brought back into the presence of God is a glorious truth. What bigger hell is there than to be no more? We the living were caught up when the Holy Spirit was put upon the earth. Well, I, I, think, we, I think we the living, we as believers today, we were caught up the moment we trusted Christ. When we trust Him, we're brought into the family, we're made alive, we're given immortality, we are part of, of the kingdom of God, so a lot of this stuff is history, uh, but very applicable to us because it affects us today. I mean, again, we're not waiting for something. The moment we trust the Lord, we're there. Uh, we enjoyed listening to your burrows of Berea. Looking forward to the upcoming podcast. Yes, thank you. Um, for those of you who don't know, the, the boroughs of Berea were here, and you sent a letter out there, buddy. right? You, if, you're, didn't, if you didn't get an email notifying you of this, you need to get on the email list so we can let you know this. But they were here, and they took testimonies from uh, me and Glenn and Jeff and Mike and Bob. And we also had a roundtable discussion on the Millennium, where we all sat around. It wasn't really, we weren't really around a table, and it wasn't round, but we sat there, and we talked about the Millennium. All of us, you know, giving our input, so it, it was interesting, it was a fun time, but they, they also took the testimonies of each one of us, and they're starting to publish those now. They're, the first one's out, I don't know, do they have any more out other than the first one? I guess every Thursday they're going to put one out, but uh, Burrows of Berea, and that's how you can find that. You can just Google Burroughs of Berea, it's a podcast, any podcast, what do they call them? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know all that stuff, but I know if you go to a, a place that does podcasts and search for Burroughs of Berea, you can find it, and uh, you know it, it's good stuff. Though we we had a good time with Rick and his wife and uh, the the staff from Burrows of Berea as they came down here in a couple weeks ago, and it was a fun time. A bunch of like minded believers. Yeah, I guess make sure like burrows as in donkey, not as in. Yeah. Right. Burros. Trenches underground. That's why I said spell it. Well, burrows, as in donkey. Donkeys a burio. Yeah, yeah. Not like the burrows, like a neighborhood. Can we put a link on our site for that so people can just? Where? I mean, we don't really have a site link. We got to figure somewhere. Just take the live button off. Put it there. If Anthony can find it, anybody
1: can find it. And he found
0: it. Link on our Facebook page. Go join our Facebook page. It's linked there. All right, someone asked me, what about Enoch taken up? What about him? <laughs> I believe Enoch was taken up. I believe he, the God took him to be with him. All right, if you read the text, Enoch walked with God. It's only said of a few men, okay? In other words, God was having some intimate fellowship with Enoch, and so he took him. And to think that he killed him to me, is just dumb. I'm enjoying your fellowship so much. Get out of here. Get away from my presence. Go die. I just don't, that just, I, I don't, you know, I don't get that at all. I think he, and you say, well, I thought people couldn't go to heaven. I think God makes exceptions, okay? God is God. He can do whatever he wants to do, and I think he makes exceptions. Listen, when was Christ crucified? Before the foundations of the world in the mind of God. So God can say, "You look, Enoch, I'm enjoying your company. Come up here and just, let's fellowship, man. I just can't see that any other way. Maybe I'm blind. Maybe I'm stupid. Probably both, but... Yes, I think Enoch and Elijah, I think, are exceptions to that thing of nobody going to heaven. But I think the general rule is people didn't go. They went to Sheol. And for God to say, in Enoch, to Sheol, listen, Enoch, I'm, I'm so enjoying your company. Go to Sheol which is death, which is separation from me. Okay, you enjoyed me so much, you're getting rid of me? And I read a paper and the guy was saying, well, God took Enoch because he killed him because he didn't want him to see all the evil of his day. It was a, it was a good thing for God to kill him. Well, to me, the Bible says that the righteous had the blessing of long life. Over and over, scripture after scripture. So that's a blessing. And it's not, it's like, I just... Again, I have a hard time with that. People, people can't deal with exceptions. Okay, if God says this, then that's how it is. Well, yeah, but again, God is God, and He can make exceptions. And if God had a good time with Enoch, He said, "Come on, I'm taking you into my presence. I'm going to fellowship with you." Anything else? Again, to me, and of course, I, I'm I'm wrong. I do I could be wrong all the time. <clears throat> Yeah, he just took them. And other people say, well, Hebrew says the point unto men wants to die. It is. That's the appointment. Men generally die. Some didn't. <laughs> okay? Well, I just want to say I appreciate the word study about the the coming back with. It just puts a real uh, clear picture in your mind of what that means. And, that, and that's why you know, I don't want to get heavy in the Greek and I don't want to bog you down, but When we do a word study, you know, check out some of these words. Some of them are just like it's used a hundred times in Scripture. Okay, it's just a normal word. But when it's used only a few times, try to figure out what is the meaning of that, you know? And you understand when you're doing this, the dictionary definition is not always the best, okay? The best definition is how the author uses it, all right? Usage always takes precedence over etymology, because words change their meaning over time. So we want to find out, how did the author use that? And that's why I said, when it's used twice in the Bible of meeting the dignitary, taking them back with you where you came from, it just seemed foolish for Paul to use that a different way. Uh, Dana writes, Many believers use the all-nations coming to the Lord before the return as a motivation or mission. If the second coming has occurred, how would this affect the the focus of zeal for missions. Well, I guess depending on the person, Dana, how it would affect them, okay? Uh, I I think, as again, we read the the scripture in Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come. There's there's an invitation to come. Listen, if you are a Christian and you're a fellowship with God and you don't want somebody else to share that same joy, something's wrong with you. And the only way they're going to share that is if you share Christ with them. I mean, to me, that's the greatest motivation. It's like, wow, I love this. I love my relationship with the Lord. Let me tell you about him. You know, I don't think we need some threat from God or some other indicator. It's just when you are excited about something, anything. You bought a new car. And this is the greatest car in the world. You're telling everybody, I got this car. I love this. You're, whatever it is, you're telling people about it because you're excited. That's how it is with the Lord. When you're excited about the Lord, you're telling people. You're sharing it with them. You want them to enjoy. You want them to experience what you're experiencing. <laughs> John, I can't read these things because you, you make me blush. This Pastor David, your continual blessing to me and family. Thank you for sharing your understanding with us today. What are your current thoughts on why the early church writings seem to look forward to the second coming? What is your current thoughts on why the early church writings seem to look forward to the second coming? Like the early church fathers, to to oh, okay. Wait a minute. I'm. I, I, thank you, Jeff. Because I'm. I'm reading that wrong. Or the early church writings. Okay. I'm thinking New Testament writings. Uh, I think there was a lot of confusion there. I really do. There's no doubt there was a lot of confusion there. You know, I mean, for centuries, there's a real silence. There's not much written at all. The <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's what some would say. I think that's Ed's position. Because of the rapture, there's this silence, you know. Well, no, how was anybody getting saved after that? I, I don't know. You know, I, I really don't, you know, the first, like I said, first couple hundred years, things were kind of quiet. Um, they didn't understand what happened. I think there's no doubt some didn't understand what happened. You know, they just... and again, I think the problem is a lot like us today. The reason we miss the second coming is because we want a physical ruler, we want the Lord to come down in a physical way and make earth a physical paradise, a Garden of Eden for us to live in and to be happy ever after, and no more pain, sorrow, any of this stuff. First century, the same way. They wanted to deliver from Rome. And so maybe that's what they're thinking. The Messiah is going to be this warrior prince. Set us all free. And so when it was spiritual, they're like, ah. And that cracks me up. People get such like, oh, that's just spiritual. Just. (laughs) It should be the other way around. That's just physical. We don't really care about the physical because the physical is being left behind. All right. We're moving into the spiritual. Could it be the tears of those in Sheol be the tears that were wiped away due to their time away from God, not ours according to audience relevance? No, because I believe Sheol is unconsciousness. The Bible speaks over and over. There's no remembrance of you in the grave. There's no one to praise you in the grave. I don't think there's any tears in Sheol. Okay? It's just you're sleeping. I think that's the best analogy and I think that's why Paul used the dead in Christ or sleeping. God was going to wake them up soon, okay? And when they woke, they'd be in his presence. All right, someone asked if Jesus resurrected physically and possibly others, will we have physical bodies in heaven? <sighs> I believe we're going to have a body, but it's going to be a spiritual body. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. Spiritual bodies. What is that? I don't know. The angels can manifest themselves in a body. You can see them. You can look at them. They can disappear. Okay? Yeah, they can eat. They can do, you know, all these different things, but it's a spiritual body. The Bible says very, very little about the afterlife. Why? Why? I don't think we can wrap our heads around to tell you the truth. I just don't, okay? But I know, I know that the gods have bodies, okay? The gods left heaven, came down, they had sex, they had kids, okay? So this, this spiritual body is something I don't understand, but it's not like the body we have now, okay? It's fit for heaven. Okay, I think I got them all. You got them all in, I hope. I hope that helps somewhat. So. Time's up? <laughs> no, we can go all day. You can continue to do that with Stomachs are growling. Uh, Doug asks, is the physical earth eternal? As far as scripture goes, it is. It doesn't talk about an end. The Bible talks about the earth continuing. Now, that's hard for us to wrap our heads around. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around no beginning. But God didn't have a beginning. And so the earth going it's just going to, people say it's just going to go on and on and on like it is. Yeah, but we won't be here. Be a different generation going through it. Hearing the gospel, coming to the Lord, uh, you know. Uh, is going to yeah, I, yeah. So don't so don't worry about climate change, okay? That's a money laundering scheme. That's all that is, okay? <laughs> The climate's going to change. I, I, believe me, it changes all the time, but it's not us doing it. Yep. And if it it's not like go yeah, and if the earth does end, which it could, again, God doesn't say anything about it. The Bible seems to make it sound like it's going to go on. Uh, if it ends, it ends. That's okay. I don't know. God's got a plan, that's for sure. Anybody else? We done? What do the creeds say? Creed say? I don't really care. I mean, not to be... Maybe I just Googled Burroughs of Berea yeah. and scroll down a little bit and right there in the little square is your pop, is your testimony.
1: <laughs> <It's clears> throat> <and> throat> you tap
0: on it and it's got the written... It's got a little explanation and then you can tap on the podcast and you can listen to the whole thing. Okay, so if you just Google Burroughs of Berea, you, you should be able to find it and be able to find the podcast. I got another question. It's- or not really a question, a comment. It says, maybe the wolves the Apostle Paul warned the Ephesians about were Judaizers who affected the early church fathers about the second coming. That's a possibility, I guess, because, again, they, they had this view of a warrior prince. And so when the second coming happened, they're like, not like they wanted it. yeah, not like they wanted it. And here's, the, you know, I'm sitting thinking about this. Okay, let's say the rapture was physical and, you know, one day all the Christians are gone, you know, and I was talking to someone and they were saying, well, the way that the physical rapture people explain this, I guess, is, okay, what happens if everybody's gone? Well, they'd heard the gospel before, but they didn't believe it. But now that everybody's gone, now they believe it. Okay. And that's one way they explain that. And I'm like, well, I'm reformed. So people believe the gospel and God gives them life. So, okay. That's said and done for me. But here's the other thing. Okay, so your relatives talking to you about the Lord, and you don't buy it, and then all of a sudden they're gone. All Christians are gone. Are you real anxious to become a Christian? They're all gone. Where'd they go? I don't know, but I'm scared. I don't want to go there. No one knows what happened to them. I'm not. I'm not jumping on that bandwagon. If all Christians gone, who put together the Bible? Well, that that happened much later, so. All right, Steve from Iowa says, how do you interpret Matthew 27.52? All right, you said, it says here, I have never heard anyone teach on that. Well, Bob Cruikshank did teach on that, and that message is in our website. So if you go there, he deals with specifically that text. He'll go there and he'll explain that to you. All right, someone asked... <laughs> Is there a limit to the number of Christians called? Oh boy, into the infinity. Yeah, this is the, the infinity argument that Sam Frost came up with. This is why he left preterism. Because God has a limited number of the elect. And so when you get them all in, it's over. Again, if you want to put a limit on God, you know, is there a limit number of Christians called? Where is it in Scripture? I don't know where. It's not in Scripture that there's a limited number of Christians called. Just God calls who we will. You say, well, it can't go on forever. Again, you're dealing with God here. Okay. It, maybe the, there's a number so big. I, I don't know. Okay. But I'm not going to say, you know, okay, there's only a limited number, so everything has to end at some time. Maybe sometime in the future it will, but the Bible doesn't talk about the earth ending. Yeah. There's things, there's things we don't know. Okay. From the scripture. All right. Uh, we've gone long enough. I'm going to wrap this up. So uh, I'm going to close in prayer. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for your questions. Uh, Enjoyed our time together. Just ask you to take what you heard this morning, go back and go over it, see if it makes sense, look up some of these Greek words, make sure I'm using them right, search them out. It's not hard to do, especially with the computers and smartphones we have today. You can look up anything and check it out. So be a Berean and do your best. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today and the opportunity we have to be here. Thank you, Father, for the joy just to study your scriptures together, Lord. I pray you teach us. I pray you'd guide us. And may we love one another, Lord, even when we disagree on different doctrines. Father, you're so good to us. Thank you for that. May the excitement we have for you overflow as we share with others the gospel of the blessed God. Thank you, Lord. Amen.